and welcome to the SCTS Education Podcast. My name's Caroline Toulon. I'm one of the cardiothoracic trainees up in the northwest, and today I'm speaking to Professor Stephen Clark from the Freeman Hospital, Newcastle upon Tyne. He is a consultant cardiac and transplant surgeon and also uh, the Director of Heart and Lung Transplantation at the Freeman Hospital. He has also been instrumental in setting up the post-CCT Fellowship in Transplantation. Today he's going to talk to us about everything from assessment uh, through to the post-op care of cardiac transplant patients. In addition, we're going to touch upon what life is like as a transplant surgeon. So for any of you with career aspirations towards transplantation, uh, listen closely. So without further ado, let's begin. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, uh, so if you can tell us a little, about, little bit about your job role and um, what you do and, and what you're involved yes, in transplantation-wise. So consultant cardiac and transplant surgeons at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle upon Tyne. So I've been a consultant there for 20 years. Um, I was also a trainee there, so I've always had an interest in uh, heart and lung transplantation um, as a discipline throughout my training and then all of my consultant career. Uh, so um, I've been involved in uh, a lot of work uh, nationally and internationally regarding uh, transplantation and uh, had a particular interest in the National Peri-CCT Transplant Training Fellowship Scheme Mm -hmm. uh, in the UK, which has been very successful Mm -hmm. in delivering new consultants into the transplant discipline for the future. Mm. So, um, and and how many people roughly come through that programme? Three fellowships Mm -hmm. um, in the United Kingdom, one based in Newcastle, Mm -hmm. one in Manchester and one at Papworth. Mm -hmm. Uh, those fellowships last for 18 months mm. and they are um, recruited and interviewed nationally. Um, so uh, we have a number of the transplant unit directors who will take part in that uh, interview process to select um, trainees uh, into the various units as and when the jobs come up. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Fellowships are governed by a very detailed educational agreement which sets out all of the training goals uh, that need to be acquired over that 18 month period. And there's a significant educational component to that with uh, educational programs provided for attending International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, uh, for example, and other educational opportunities relating to either transplantation or mechanical assist. and it's been extremely successful over the years that it's been running in providing new transplant consultants for uh, each of the six transplant centres in the United Kingdom. Um, so um, we will talk a little bit more about what it means to be a transplant surgeon, the different sort of pathways to get there, the sort of um, details that people might be interested in in terms of career planning for that. Um, but if we go back in time a little bit and just talk a little bit about the history of, uh, of transplantation and cardiac transplantation and, and, uh, and how we've got to where we are today, really. Yeah, so 2017 uh, was actually the 50th anniversary of the first heart transplant, um, so not, not that long ago. Um, but heart transplantation you can trace back to 1905. Yeah. Alexis Carell, you will remember, was the father of uh, surgical anastomosis, vascular yeah. anastomosis, mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago with uh, colleagues of his. The first heart transplant um, of a dog's heart into the neck of another uh, dog. Uh, but it wasn't until 1940, 1946 that 
um, work began in earnest on orthotopic heart transplantation. So there was a surgeon in the USSR called Demikov uh, who did the, the first heterotopic um, heart transplants in dogs using very rudimentary bypass machines. But he, he was actually more uh, famously known for uh, creating two-headed dogs. Um, mm. which was <laughs> Another, and, mm. uh, so that was actually what he was more known for. Did he have a uh, Did he have a success rate with that? Was there? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, the, the dogs last, last uh, lived for some years. Um, Fascinating. Uh, say, say the papers of the time. Oh wow! Um, but it was really the 1950s and towards the late 1950s that um, that the real breakthroughs began uh, with Lower and Shumway at Stanford University mm-hmm. in the US. Uh, they began um, work on the surgical technique of, of heart transplantation, much of which is still very similar to how we do it today, uh, using more advanced bypass machines. Um, and there was a surgeon called Webb uh, in the 1950s who began to uh, look at how we preserve hearts uh, mm-hmm. using cold flush preservation and, and ice storage. So uh, all of this began to come together um, as the beginnings of, of heart transplantation as, as we know it today. Um, it was 1964, though, that was the first heart transplant, and it's not the one that we all think of, mm. Christian Barnard. It was actually a surgeon called Hardy in Mississippi who had a patient with a heart uh, full of blood clots, and um, the only way that he could think about rescuing this patient was to transplant the heart with that of a chimpanzee. And right. so he actually undertook that. The first heart transplant in a human was actually um, a xenotransplant. Interesting. Um, and that, that patient lived for about an hour in the operating theatre uh, before dying, but it did establish mm. that, that these techniques could be used in, in humans mm. rather than dogs. Mm. Um, but then, of course, it was December the 3rd, 1967, when Christian Barnard uh, famously did the first heart transplant in a human. Mm-hmm. Um, the recipient was a, a grocer called Louis Washkansky, and the donor um, was a, a young woman who'd been hit by a drunk driver while she was crossing the street um, to buy some cakes for a family party. Um, and that operation, uh, you know, was groundbreaking. Mm. It launched um, Christian Barnard to worldwide fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and that patient lived for about 18 days after the operation before dying of uh, renal fungal failure and, mm. uh, and rejection. But that then caused an explosion in heart transplantation all around the world with a huge number of centres beginning heart transplantation. Um, But this was met with um, disappointing failure in the vast majority Mm. of cases with a very high mortality rate, up to 80% um, at one point uh, for worldwide outcomes. Um, But the problem there was not the surgery, but it was rejection. Mm-hmm. And it was when cyclosporin was uh, developed in the mid-1980s that the results of heart transplantation really started to dramatically improve. And, uh, you know, when we look at the outcomes of heart transplantation now, we would expect an 85 to 90% survival of one year, um, around 65% survival of five years, uh, going out to about 25% survival of 20 years. So the results uh, nowadays are, are really impressive for those patients who we would expect to die within a year or so mm. of end-stage heart failure. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. So when we're looking at people to um, to perform transplantation on, 
Um, can you talk us through some of the sort of selection criteria and uh, yeah, who, who are the people who are going to gain most benefit from this particular procedure? Yeah, so, so the patients will, will obviously be in end-stage heart failure. So we're looking mm. at patients who are generally in NYHA3 mm-hmm. status um, with poor left ventricular function, generally an injection fraction less than, than 30%, very many of them much, much less than that. Mm. Um, they will be on optimal medical therapy already um, with ACE inhibitors, carvedol, um, and so on and so forth uh, under the care of another heart failure cardiologist. Um, they will also already have been considered for newer technologies like CRT, actually the ejection fraction is less than 35% and they have a broad QRS complex. Mm-hmm. They may already have had an implantable defibrillator um, placed as well. Um, so those would be the typical population that we would see coming for, for, for transplant assessment. Um, and they usually have had multiple admissions with heart failure uh, within, that, within that year. The cause of the heart failure is, is multifactorial. Many will have dilated cardiomyopathies, ischemic cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the majority will be in that sort of situation. But sometimes we have rarer forms of, uh, of, of cardiomyopathy, um, sometimes associated with Becker's uh, muscular dystrophy, for mm-hmm. example, or amyloidosis. It can be, can be a, a large range of pathologies in, involved. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see the patients, we, we need to think very carefully about the risks and the benefits and also the alternatives that mm-hmm. the patient could yep. benefit from. So thinking about the ischemic cardiomyopathy patients, it might be that they have recruitable myocardium and mm-hmm. we could offer them a high-risk coronary artery bypass operation, for mm-hmm. example, that could improve their ejection fraction. And they don't necessarily need to go to transplantation or there may be a valvular pathology, mitral regurgitation, for example, that we could correct through conventional surgery and they don't mm-hmm. need to go through the, the transplant pathway. Go mm-hmm. through a very detailed assessment mm-hmm. um, because we, we have to recognise that, that there is an organ shortage and we have to make sure that we're using uh, what organs we have for transplantation to the, to the greatest um, benefit. Mm. So the, the patient will have a multidisciplinary team evaluation, which is very comprehensive. It's cardiologists, it's surgeons, social workers, transplant coordinators, uh, physiotherapists, all manner of, of experts will evaluate the patients from very many um, angles to make sure that they fulfill the criteria that we are uh, requiring for them to, to go onto the list. And their social support and history of compliance with medical treatment is very important because mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be very reliant on immunosuppression mm-hmm. in the long term. And we need to make sure the patient is going to comply fully with a regime of cardiac biopsies to check for rejection and, and will take their medication yeah. for the rest of their life. So as part of that evaluation, they'll, they'll have um, uh, an exercise test and the VO2 max is very important in us deciding whether a patient is going to go forward to transplantation or not. Generally speaking, we're looking for a VO2 max of less than 12 uh, mils per kilo per minute. Mm. Um, we'll look at their uh, BNP levels, mm-hmm. um, so they will need to be significantly uh, elevated. And we'll be looking at their pul- pulmonary vascular resistance as well. Mm. Um, they have to have a pulmonary vascular resistance of less than five wood units or a transpulmonary gradient of less than 15 millimetres of mercury. 
reason for that is that we need to guard against right ventricular failure after mm. a heart transplant. Mm-hmm. So if, if the patient has a very high uh, pulmonary artery pressure or high pulmonary vascular resistance and we mm-hmm. transplant the heart, uh, the transplanted heart will not be able to eject into a high resistance pulmonary circulation mm-hmm. and the heart will fail um, very often right there and then in the operating room. Oh. So, um, we, we need to be very mindful of, of that and um, you know, patients with very high pulmonary artery pressures um, will not be accepted immediately for, for heart transplantation. Yeah. I, f- I found that very interesting actually looking through some of the guidelines for transplantation because it seemed to me that quite a lot of it was establishing um, how long somebody's had evidence of right heart failure for and whether a uh, uh, and I guess the idea, the important thing is to know whether if they have got somehow how reversible it is. So things yeah. like um, liver dysfunction being a, a, a key, like a poor prognostic factor, uh, re- cardiorenal syndrome being a poor prognostic factor. Um, and and I wondered how you determine because I imagine that for a lot of these patients they will they will primarily have left ventricular failure, but they will then tip in to a degree of biventricular failure. And where that balance lies, it must be quite difficult picking those patients apart who might have some sort of reversibility there. You're absolutely right. And it is a very difficult dilemma sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's why it's important to involve a larger multidisciplinary team because Mm -hmm. it isn't always straightforward to to be able to determine which patients are and aren't suitable Mm -hmm. for transplantation. You, you mentioned cardiorenal syndrome, mm. and I think that that's a very important um, uh, example because a lot of patients who have low output cardiac failure will will have very poor renal function. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's because they have a low cardiac output, and if we give them a new heart or we give them a left ventricular assist device, for example, then their renal function will very often improve. Mm. Um, and and you know that is very important to, to draw in expertise from from renal physicians and so on to determine whether an individual patient's renal function is reversible uh, with a better cardiac output or not. Mm. Most of the time it is, mm-hmm. but sometimes it won't be. It might be worsened by the immunosuppressant drugs that we, we then give the patient. Mm. Um, so these are these are very difficult dilemmas to um, to consider. Alongside other comorbidities that the patient might have, like, like diabetes or peripheral vascular disease, um, uh, and, and so on, and, and you know, we need to make sure that all, all those, that, although those examples are relative contraindications to heart transplantation, they're not absolute. Mm. One of the other things I, I found interesting looking through um, the, the sort of indications was something I think I found diff- difficult to understand um, previously is that there's a difference between sort of ambulatory patients. And patients with refractory heart failure or who are in hospital or have had an admission and that the actually the ones that you're really aiming for by the looks of things is the ambulatory ones because I get the impression that those are the ones who may well have the better outcome from this sort of circumstance and and that once you're admitted to hospital once you're in refractory heart failure it's a it's a working out actually are we going to be able to optimize you enough to get you back to ambulatory to get you back to a potential transplantation candidate yes, is yeah. that is that yeah, that's right so mm-hmm. you know the, the patient uh, patients will present in a, in a, across a, a wide spectrum mm-hmm. um you know there will be ambul- ambulatory patients that's mm-hmm. probably a large number of the patients we will see for heart transplantation 
consultation will, will come in from, from home. Mm. Um, but there equally will be those that are very acute admissions that, that mm. come in, in, in in very acute cardiogenic shock. Um, mm. And, you know, we will have patients that, that need mechanical support with ECMO, for example, mm. very quickly to, to support them to as a bridge to decision mm. about heart transplant or bridge to recovery. Mm. Um, and there will be patients that will come in and be on inotropic support. Um, and the the listing process that we we have divides the the, the waiting list for heart transplantation into three distinct categories to reflect the urgency of the patients that might need a heart transplant. Um, so there is a routine list um, uh, which the majority of patients will be on, but there will also be an urgent category um, which the inotropic dependent patients will be on, those with balloon pumps, uh, perhaps those with left ventricular assist devices and complications relating to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will get priority over the hearts that come up across the country mm-hmm. um, so that we uh, deliver heart transplants to those most in need uh, mm-hmm. as a priority. There is actually also a super urgent category, mm-hmm. which only a very small number of patients are on, but those would be those who are dependent on ECMO, for right. example. Mm-hmm. Um, or have some other form of, uh, of mechanical support uh, as, a, as a short-term device mm-hmm. to save their life. So uh, the, those patients get absolute priority for any organs that come up And is there a duration that somebody can be on that sort of support for prior to the decision being made or prior to a transplant becoming available because I imagine there's a you know ECMO is not a sort of long-term solution for people so is, is there a, a, a period of time that you think well oh, actually we're kind of we, we're running out of time a bit for this patient yeah. or is there well there isn't an absolute length mm-hmm. of time but we do know that the, the, the longer that someone is on ECMO the greater the risk there is of them developing uh, complications from that mm-hmm. mechanical support um, in particular bleeding um, and, uh, and sepsis. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, ECMO is pretty well tolerated for mm-hmm. around a fortnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, you start to uh, accrue complications in my, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you've got someone on ECMO, you're looking to get them off ECMO as quickly as possible. And that's going to be either by them recovering, mm-hmm. weaning the ECMO and decannulating them, and then thinking about what our next steps are going to be. Mm-hmm or um, getting rid of the ECMO by transplanting them mm-hmm. or moving to a more durable assist device. So mm-hmm. when patients come in in that, in that sort of uh, situation, um, you know, the decision-making is, is very important. Uh, we have to consider the risks of staying on short-term support against the risks of moving to transplantation, mm-hmm. uh, for example, in that, in that situation. Um, heart transplantation has less good results if you transplant patients in that situation, you right. know, your best results are going to come from the, you know, elective patient coming from home mm-hmm. um, rather than the patient who is transplanted from ECMO. But results are still very good in that, mm. that category. Mm. And so just going forward to what you were mentioning, the difference between sort of a bridge to decision and the bridge to transplantation with using uh, mechanical support. And when when might you go from... When you might, when might you start using mechanical support for a patient who, as a as a bridge to to transplantation, um, and making that decision as to whether it's appropriate for that particular person yeah. or not? So, 
we can use more durable left ventricular, ventricular assist devices mm -hmm. um, if we have patients who we feel are, are in heart failure, they have recurrent admissions, for example, perhaps they're on a trip dependent on the ward, uh, perhaps they're a rare blood group or a large mm -hmm. size and we don't think that they're going to get a donor heart mm -hmm. very quickly. Um, those are the patients where we will start to think about um, supporting them mechanically uh, as a bridge to transplant. Mm -hmm. In the UK, we are only funded for bridge to transplant. In mm -hmm. many other countries around the world, you can use ventricular assist devices as a destinational mm -hmm. uh, uh, solution to that heart mm -hmm. failure, but that, that's not the case uh, officially in the, in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. although many patients de facto end up on their devices for a very, very long time, mm -hmm. and therefore essentially are destination therapy. Yeah. They're still on the transplant waiting list and waiting to be done. Yeah. But, but those those patients will be very similar in nature to the to the patients that we're going to consider for a transplant. Uh, we'll be looking at their VO2 max. We'll want a VO2 max of less than 12, for example. Um, again, we would want um, uh, other criteria like um, uh, freedom from uh, from sepsis or other major comorbidities. Um, to be considered before we would go for, for a ventricular assist device. Um, because patients on ventricular assist devices are going to be anticoagulated, unlike a heart transplant, mm. um, that's another consideration we need to make for individual patients. Do they have any particular bleeding disorder uh, or have they had a, a history of stroke or hemorrhagic um, uh, issues in the past that could be exacerbated by this? When you're on a continuous flow ventricular assist device, you get an acquired von Willebrand factor deficiency, so you have a greater uh, risk of bleeding. So that, that is a very important consideration. The, one of the other considerations in selecting patients for ventricular assist device is whether they have aortic valve disease, mm. because you, you can get aortic regurgitation when you're on a ventricular assist device. Um, so, so that, that too needs to be considered. And if that's significant, you can still put a VAD in, but you need to replace the aortic valve as well. Okay. Uh, with a bioprosthesis, mm. a mechanical valve is, is no good because the washing jets will cause a lot of backflow through the, through the valve. Durable ventricular assist devices is re re reserved for not the crash and burn sort of heart failure mm -hmm. patients. Mm -hmm. Those would be the ones that we would prefer to go to ECMO with consider our options um, yeah. after that. So um, you might be familiar with the Intermax, yeah. um, the Intermax uh, uh, score. So um, Intermax 1 is your sort of acute heart failure, crash and burn. Intermax 2 is your uh, deteriorating patient on, on inotropes. 3 is your stable patient on inotropes. And 4 is, is patients who are sort of the frequent flyers that, that come in and out with, with heart failure. Mm. And when you consider the risks of ventricular assist device implantation, um, the best results come from those patients in, in Intermax 2 to 4, generally speaking. Right. Okay, so you're, you're so, kind of moving people from... Uh, from a situation where they're truly decompensating and, 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 and really got an imminent risk of death, you're moving them towards a situation where actually they've got fun they've not got any sort of organ failure. You're stabilizing them and preventing them from, from becoming a non transplant candidate potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so ventricular assist devices have become increasingly popular in recent years. Mm. Um, so, so now most units, um, will have somewhere between 
30 and 60% of the patients on their transplant waiting list will have a ventricular system Right. Now, around about 30% of patients who have a VAD in will get a transplant in the end. Mm-hmm. Many, as I've said before, will remain on a VAD for mm-hmm. the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but the results aren't as good in the long term with a ventricular assist device compared to heart transplantation. Mm. So uh, if we look at ventricular assist devices, the five-year survival is somewhere around 50%, mm-hmm. um, where heart transplantation, the 10-year survival is around Ventricular assist devices are a great option for improving patients' quality of life, keeping them out of heart failure, maintaining their other organ Mm -hmm. organs in good shape. Yep. Um, But they're not um, the the sort of ultimate panacea for for, for heart failure because of the complications and problems that are involved in long-term fat therapy, which would include bleeding, as I've mentioned, the issues with anticoagulation, infections, um, particularly driveline infections, mm-hmm. uh, and, and systemic sepsis, um, strokes, and other thromboembolic events. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's a very valuable option for us. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can be therapeutic if we have a patient who has a very high pulmonary vascular resistance mm-hmm. don't feel they could be transplanted for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence that if we put them on a ventricular assist device, that that pulmonary artery pressure will fall. Yeah. And that might make them a better heart transplant candidate. In mm. Do you do you check for sort of reversibility in those situations? Um, yeah, resistance. Mm. Where we found a high pulmonary vascular mm-hmm. resistance, when we're assessing them for heart transplantation, we'll, we'll always make a, 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 an assessment of the reversibility. Of yeah. The, um, yeah. Pulmonary, uh, hypertension. Yeah. Um, and you know, the more reversible it is, the the intermax thing is really interesting because I have to say that's another area where I think when I was just sort of um, sort of getting to grips with uh, transplantation and, and some of the uh, particular sort of phrasing, I guess, and all the abbreviations, I think that um, what was interesting is that intermax is particularly about mechanical support and focuses and is derived from looking at outcomes for people with mechanical support. And I know f- Certainly, previously in my mind, I'd confused that with an assessment for transplantation, and it's kind of two separate things, although they can be used complementary to each other, I suppose. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. The, the Intermax classification mm-hmm. system is derived for ventricular assist device mm. uh, decision making mm-hmm. and categorization of patients. Mm. Um, it's not really used in the heart transplant um, uh, decision-making mm-hmm. process, although mm-hmm. it's a similar cohort of patients. Mm. Intermax is generally speaking a, a, a VAD-related yeah. uh, system, yeah. scoring system. Yeah, and here when we're looking at VADs, we're looking at, at how can this how can this be used to stabilise somebody's function of the rest of their body as well as to ideally improve their heart to make sure they maintain their status as a transplant candidate rather than um, a destination therapy although as you mentioned many many yeah, people the, may the end up yeah. is really there mm-hmm. to, to buy the patient time yeah you know, these are patients that are deteriorating they yeah. can no longer wait for a heart transplant mm-hmm. they may be people who are just not going to get a heart transplant quickly because mm-hmm. of their size or blood group or other factors and it, it keeps them alive it keeps their their uh, end organ perfusion carrying uh, mm-hmm. it will buy them time to get the heart transplant that they need mm-hmm. and it may be therapeutic in terms of dropping their pulmonary vascular resistance for mm-hmm. example to make them a better candidate mm-hmm. um, 
undertaking than a primary heart transplant, mm. um, but overall the success of mechanical therapy for, for heart transplantation, heart failure is, uh, is, has been very significant. Mm. Um, you know, when we, we go back nearly 20 years to the rematch trial, which, which uh, compared uh, mechanical assist with uh, conventional medical therapy, mm. and there was a very significant advantage to mm. Having mechanical therapy uh, compared to having the best possible man- medical management for your heart failure. Mm. Now it may be that that's changed now. Um, medical therapy for heart failure has significantly changed over the last two decades mm. um, with new technologies like CRT and implantable defibrillators and new drugs coming along, a better understanding of the pathophysiology of heart failure. Um, but so have mechanical assist devices changed as well in the last 20 years. And uh, I would direct listeners to a, 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 a recent paper of the Momentum trial, which looked at uh, two uh, heart-made devices uh, with really excellent results mm. uh, achievable with, with modern pump systems. Mm. Mm. Um, where does the difference between sort of RVAD, LVAD, and BIVAD come into action in terms of uh, in terms of transplantation? Are, are they things that you use uh, like all of them as equally, or is it primarily LVADs and, and BIVADs and RVADs yeah, not so, so frequently? It's primarily LVADs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the vast majority of patients will have an LVAD, mm-hmm. um, and then they will wait for their heart transplant. Mm-hmm. However, we need to remember that with an LVAD, you're going to get an increased cardiac output. You will therefore have more blood returning to the heart, um, and you will also get some septal shift. And all of these things can lead to right ventricular failure. So right ventricular failure can happen acutely after you've had your left ventricular assist device put in or it can happen more gradually over time. Um, It's very difficult sometimes to predict which patients are going to get right ventricular failure after they've had an LVAD put in, Um, but we can sometimes optimise patients by um, diuresing them or even using CVVH to get as much fluid off the patient as we possibly can before implanting the device to minimise the risk of right ventricular failure. Patients will sometimes need inotropic support to support the right ventricle mm. after they've had a left ventricular assistive device. Um, but mm. if that fails, then a temporary right ventricular assistive device can then mm. be put in, mm-hmm. um, which will drain blood from the right atrium and pump it into the pulmonary artery. Mm. Um, and that's usually an external device, mm-hmm. uh, an external pump, um, which can then be dis- decommissioned when right ventricular function so the vast majority of patients will have an LVAD, some will have right ventricular failure and need an RVAD, mm. which then will usually be removed you know, at some point over the patient's intensive care unit stay. I see. The patients that need biventricular assist devices are those who have usually been admitted very acutely mm-hmm. and have significant biventricular failure, but increasingly units are using ECMO for that kind of situation right. to bridge the patient to Um, so if we move on now to the actual, uh, the sort of selection of oh, patient to donor or donor to patient, um, what sort of challenges do you encounter in that circumstance? 
Uh, well, apart from there not being any. Yeah, that being a big problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. related to cardiac output generation yes, and volume yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. so so uh, around about a 20% size difference mm-hmm. is, is acceptable mm-hmm. in general terms um, interestingly we also need to look at the sex match of the donor and the mm-hmm. recipients mm-hmm. for heart transplantation um, female to female is fine male to male is fine mm-hmm. if you put a female heart in a male you get a significant increase in Yeah. But, but we are always mindful of that, of that hazard. Uh, male to male is fine, female to female yeah. is fine. Is that something to do with genetic expression on, you know, an X chromosome or something? It just seems interesting no, that it, really yeah. It's a very um, consistent finding yeah. around the world and there are a variety of potential theories that have been put forward. Yeah. Um, but nobody's absolutely certain of why yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Interesting field for future research for aspiring transplant surgeons. <laughs> yeah. um, the age of the donor is really important as mm-hmm. well. Um, if you look at the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, uh, they look at the the uh, risk of death in a recipient according to the age of the donor, mm-hmm. and the best age of donor that you can have is thirty two years old. Right. Um, but the, the average age of a donor in Europe is around 46 years old. Mm. Um, and we've seen over the years the age of donors has just gone up and up and up. Mm. And as your age goes up, the comorbidities go up. And yep. You're more likely to be diabetic or hypertensive or mm. have had some cardiac issues uh, that have required treatment. And so uh, that, that is a, that is a, a, a consideration as, as well. Mm. Um, we look at the HLA uh, matching of the donor to the recipient to make sure there aren't any preformed um, antibodies that are going to cause us a, a problem with, uh, with rejection. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to consider would be the ischemic time of mm-hmm. the heart. So the longer the heart is out of the donor and in an ice box and travelling up to Newcastle or wherever, mm-hmm. um, the, the worse it is in terms of function. Uh, afterwards and the higher the risk of primary graft dysfunction. So the best outcomes will come with ischemic times of less than three hours. Right. So that three hour period has to encompass the moment the heart is arrested in the donor, mm. packaging it, putting it in a box, bringing it all the way to wherever the implanting mm. centre is and actually sewing the heart in because the ischemic time doesn't end until the cross clamp's released and blood is returned into the heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. So three hours isn't actually very long, no. you know, to get a heart from one place to, to 
to, to another. Mm. Four hours is, a, is generally an acceptable length of ischemic time, but mm. over four hours you, you really will start to worry about um, problems coming off bypass after the operation. So mm. ischemic time is, is very, very important. Um, and, and as an attempt to try and mitigate against those um, risks, there's been a lot of work put into organ preservation technologies mm. that would allow the heart to remain perfused while it's being tra- transported. Mm-hmm. So the most well-known example of that would be the Transmedics organ care system, where mm-hmm. the heart is removed from the donor and then put into a machine which will pump oxygenated uh, blood um, into the aorta, mm-hmm. and then we collect it pump it back again so that you can mm. transport the uh, heart under active perfusion. Right. Um, and so your ischemic time is very, very low. Mm. Um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that that is very beneficial, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in high-risk recipients um, and in marginal donors. Mm. Uh, but it is a very expensive system. Mm. Uh, how much does it cost for something like that, just to put it in context? So the yeah. disposable mm. cost for the transmedics is around £32,000 mm. mm. each time each mm. time you use it. Mm. Um, so there are, there are other devices that are in development. Um, mm. There's one that's very close to entering into uh, multi-centre trials in Europe, uh, developed in Lund in Sweden, uh, which is a cold, um, arrested heart perfusion system where the heart will be continuously perfused essentially with cardioplegia which yeah. is oxygenated mm-hmm. um, rather than a beating heart model as mm-hmm. in the transmedic system mm-hmm. um, and that has had some promising results in the first trials in man there have mm-hmm. been about 16 heart transplants done with that system all successful so mm-hmm. that's an exciting and lower cost mm-hmm. and technically more simple device mm-hmm. um, that will potentially challenge transmedics in, in the year or two, in the years ahead. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a very interesting space to mm. be in preservation. Yeah. And when, they're, when they've demonstrated good results with them, is this over a, a more prolonged period of time? So have they found that it's been sort of four hours to five hours rather than three hours? Is that the sort of thing they've been looking at? Yeah, yeah. so with the, with the heart perfused, mm-hmm. um, open things up obviously it would it would kind of open up within the within the country in terms of of organ donors but does that actually also potentially open up things more more internationally in terms of organ yes. donors is is that something absolutely mm-hmm. yeah i mean we've, we've used it to retrieve hearts from from europe um uh, and and successfully so so mm. you're right that mm. it does broaden our um you know, the geographic uh, limitations that they used to be yeah. start to dissolve away when you have ways of, of preserving the heart for long yeah. periods of time. 
No, that's interesting. Um, one of the things I was wondering is, is the actual conduct of doing the procedure in terms of your liaising clearly closely with a team who are in another centre, who are looking at heart, who are kind of your eyes uh, as to whether this is a suitable organ or not, and then working out the timing as to when you take out the native heart from that patient. So how does that work and how does that decision making on that communication take place? Yeah, so, so the communication is, mm-hmm. is absolutely critical in, mm-hmm. in, in heart transplantation. So we, we have obviously transplant coordinators who will mm-hmm. be doing all of that um, that difficult work uh, to make sure that the timings and the communications are all, all happening as they as they should be. Um, so once we've identified a donor that we're we're interested in, the the, uh, the, the retrieval team will be dispatched and will make an assessment of the heart. Um, and that is very thorough. They will go through all of the records, um, the hemodynamics. They'll put a swan gas catheter in and, and check uh, all of the uh, all of the numbers and parameters are all satisfactory um, before opening the chest and examining the heart. Once we're happy that the heart is okay, um, that's when we will uh, move our recipient to to the operating uh, theatre. Um, in some situations, like a VAD explant, or maybe a patient who's had multiple previous cardiac mm, surgery, we will need a yeah. extra time to be prepared for mm-hmm. heart returning to us. Um, so all of that needs to be put into the mix when we're thinking about the timings of when um, you know the, the patient, the recipient, gets into theatre compared to what the, when the cross clamp time is going to be, and the donor and the heart's going to be removed, and have to take into account the travel time and so on and so forth. So that can be quite quite a complicated mm. uh, situation to, to work out and is often quite quite fluid mm. as well as things develop on, on the day. Um, generally speaking though, once we've got the patient, uh, the recipient um, uh, prepared for the heart, that is to say we've done a stenotomy and we've cannulated the patient, um, we'll not go on bypass until we know the heart is mm. physically quite close by. So. Mm-hmm. Newcastle, for example, we our airport is around around fifteen minutes away from the hospital. So as soon as we know that the plane has landed, we'll um, go on to bypass and excise the heart. Okay. And by the time we've done that, the box will miraculously arrive mm-hmm. in the operating room uh, at exactly the right time. Mm-hmm. And other centres will have their own, you know, key mm-hmm. um, time points that they will they will uh, uh, know is the right moment to 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 carry out particular points in the operation. Right, yeah. Um, and then once the heart has, has, has come to you in the in the room, um, it's a simple matter to then of uh, taking it out of the ice box mm-hmm. um, and beginning the anastomoses. Mm. And, um, and so typically the, the anastomoses that need to be done are the, the left atrium is the mm-hmm. first one to do. So you have a left atrial cuff, that's the first anastomosis, um, and then the pulmonary artery and aorta. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the two vena cavi. Mm-hmm. Um, so nowadays we do a bicaval anastomosis technique for heart transplantation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Shumway's day, he would just have a right atrial anastomosis. Oh. He have individual caval anastomoses. Okay. But over the years, we've demonstrated that hearts function better. You have less functional tricuspid regurgitation, better function if you do mm-hmm. caval anastomosis mm-hmm. rather than a right atrial anastomosis. And do you ever get stenoses uh, uh, around the anastomosis for those things? Very, very rarely, no. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't think I've ever seen that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen that Mm -hmm. at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So anastomotic complications in heart transplantation Mm -hmm. are are 
exceptionally rare. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about this is probably a simple question from your point of view, but what about de-airing? How do you have you? What's your process for de-airing? Because I imagine that essentially it's been flushed through and it's had ice and all these things. How do you? Yeah, it's exactly you, the same yeah. as you would de-air the heart for any, mm-hmm. any procedure. No, mm-hmm. no difference at all. Mm-hmm. Um, many surgeons, myself included, would mm-hmm. remove the cross clamp as soon as the aortic anastomosis is yeah. done, so that you're reducing the ischemic. That's time. what I wondered. I thought you want to get that cross clamp off as quickly as possible, yeah, really. Right. Yeah. You mm. don't need the heart to be uh, clamped or arrested to do the cable anastomosis. So mm. um, I think many would uh, just do the left atrium and aorta and then take the clamp off. I see. Do everything else, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, uh, with coronary circulation re-established. Mm. Mm. Um, so that you can have a warm ischemic time. Mm. That is the time from coming out of the icebox to the cross-cut coming off of, yeah. you know, 20 or 30 minutes. Mm. Um, do you cool the patients um, when you're putting them on bypass in preparation? What sort of temperature do you tend to go to for these? Uh, personally, 34 degrees, right. um, just mm-hmm. very modest hypothermia. I'm sure other surgeons and other units will differ Yeah, that. But it's not sort of profound hypothermia for these, no, you know, not necessary. Not, mm-hmm. not okay. Yeah. Um, super. So I was just wondering if we go on a little bit more to the um, to sort of post-operative care for these patients now. And clearly that's complex, what with all the immunosuppression and things that they uh, they require. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say actually the, the most important post-operative complication mm-hmm. happens pretty much straight away in the mm-hmm. operating room. And that's, that's primary graft dysfunction. Right. So around 20% of hearts just won't work when you come to cough bypass. Right. Um, and you get significant right ventricular dysfunction, mm-hmm. sometimes the ventricular dysfunction as well, and the patient just won't come off bypass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's one of the most important post-operative um, issues that you'll face pretty much straight away. Mm-hmm. And you can rest the heart um, for a little while, allow it to you know, overcome the period of ischemia that it's had during transportation, and then attempt to come off bypass again with inotropic support, and that will often work. But it's, it's generally uh, a good idea, rather than thrashing the heart with inotropes for a long time, uh, is actually just to put the patient on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, through the groin, mm-hmm. close the chest, take the patient back to intensive care, and then allow the heart to recover over the next few days mm-hmm. and get the patient off ECMO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a very successful strategy yeah. uh, for that particular post-operative problem. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're right that the, the post-operative management then is, is um, based around immunosuppression, establishing mm-hmm. immunosuppression. Um, generally, triple therapy is used. Um, in Newcastle, we would use cyclosporin and azathioprine and steroids um, in the form of methylprednisolone. Um, some units will use tacrolimus instead mm-hmm. of cyclosporin and MMF instead of azathioprine. Um, but that would be a generally accepted uh, triple therapy regime for immunosuppression mm-hmm. uh, for heart transplantation. Some units around the world um, and some in the UK will also use induction therapy um, where uh, antithymocyte globulin or basiliximab is mm-hmm. used um, uh, to augment the, the immunosuppression. Um, but there is an increased risk of infection and of malignancy uh, when you use that um, type of immunosuppression regime. Right. So that's kind of falling out of favour mm-hmm. um, around the world. I think the last estimate from the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation suggested that around 50% of units were using induction therapy. So right. um, 
you know, many, uh, many do not. Um, and that is a very successful strategy of reducing rejection. Um, around 20 to 40 percent of patients would probably get rejection in the first six months mm -hmm. or so. Um, but if they do, it's simply treated with pulsed um, methylprednisolone treatment. Mm -hmm. So you give three consecutive days of high dose methylprednisolone uh, between 500 500 milligrams and a gram of, of methylpred over three consecutive days, and that would usually deal with the problem. Um, if it is particularly problematic, you might want to augment the immunosuppression or look at alternative immunosuppression agents. Mm. Um, but usually rejection is not a major issue these days. Mm -hmm. It can be treated. Um, the patients will have a surveillance regime of uh, cardiac biopsy. Mm -hmm. So uh, very frequently they will go and they will have a, a uh, biotone put down there internal jugular vein mm -hmm. and through the tricuspid valve and little biopsies of the right ventricle taken and mm -hmm. examined for um, rejection, mm -hmm. which is then graded. Um, so, uh, you know, usually we can we can stay on top of that particular complication mm -hmm. for, for patients in the, in the long term and it is, uh, and it is treatable. Mm. And then after that, really, the longer term complications for patients uh, are largely those complications of immunosuppression. Mm. Um, so 90% uh, of patients will get hypertension, um, about 30% will get some form of renal dysfunction, a similar percentage will get diabetes, um, and about 35% of patients over the long term uh, will develop some form of malignancy, which is usually mm. skin cancers. Right. And these are all complications of long-term immunosuppression, mm -hmm. uh, which the physicians who look after the patients longer term will be very alert to all of these potential side effects. Mm -hmm. um, so they're very important to uh, to monitor and, and mitigate against so that you can get the very best long-term um, survival for, mm -hmm. for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, one interesting sort of uh, sequelae of having a heart transplant is a syndrome of cardiac allograft vasculopathy mm -hmm. where the patient will develop a chronic rejection syndrome in the coronary arteries, mm -hmm. so they will tend to become, um, uh, you know, narrowed down in a diffuse manner, mm. um, and they will start to develop that um, from the time they have their, their heart transplant. So by about five years, around forty-five percent of patients might be developing that, and that's mm. one of the main reasons why, uh, or one of the main reasons that, that, that survival after heart transplantation becomes limited. And is that that's is that something that's amenable? It sounds like it's not because it's diffuse. But yeah. is that something that is amenable at all to bypass grafting, or is this something where you just have yeah, to? That's yeah. exactly right. Mm. It's a very diffuse um, uh, pathology, mm. and so discrete lesions that can be treated by PCI or by bypass yeah. grafting are not just, really yeah. um, possible. Yeah. There are some patients in which we would consider re-transplantation. Mm, I wondered about that, um, yeah. Mm. But, you know, we would, we would need to evaluate those patients very, very carefully mm -hmm. um, to make sure that they didn't have any other uh, comorbidity from their long-term mm -hmm. uh, immunosuppression use, particularly renal dysfunction. Yeah. Um, and given the donor organ shortages, we also have the sort of ethical dilemma do we use a heart for a patient who's not had a chance to have a heart transplant at all yet yeah. and use it for someone who's already had perhaps mm -hmm. a, a number of years um, 
alive with a with a with a heart transplant. Yeah. So there are, there are only a minority of heart transplants done in the world now that are retransplants. Yeah, just the fact that somebody's had already had um, uh, all had gone through all the immunosuppression, had various blood transfusions as well as another heart transplant. Does that make it more complicated as well in terms of finding a suitable um, donor, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So all sensitising events, mm-hmm. you know, blood transfusions, operations, mm-hmm. and so on, even having a ventricular-assist device, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly, will, mm-hmm. will sensitise you, mm-hmm. uh, make it more difficult potentially mm-hmm. for you to find a suitable yeah. Yeah. But should we move on to the uh, let's talk about life as a transplant surgeon section and just see. Um, so if you if you can sort of describe what your what your general responsibilities and activities are and and, and maybe um, how budding transplant surgeons can sort of think what they need to think about in terms of what sort of exposure, what sort of experience they might be able to gain and what would make somebody eligible, for example, for one of your fellowships. So. Well, the life of the transplant surgeon is is, is, is an interesting one. Um, most surgeons are not purely transplant surgeons, so mm-hmm. transplantation is usually uh, an add-on to your usual day-to-day work. So uh, the vast majority of, tra- of, of um, surgeons will, will have a normal caseload of adult cardiac surgery, um, and when they are on call, will mm-hmm. cover transplantation as well as general cardiac surgical uh, emergencies. Mm-hmm. But the added... Um, elements to the job will, will involve things like the multidisciplinary team meetings, mm-hmm. which are very important to attend so that you understand uh, the um, recipients that are being evaluated. You can contribute in terms of the surgical uh, risk factors and the suitability of the, the patient for, for surgery. Um, and also participate in those important decisions around should this patient have a heart transplant, should this patient go to ventricular assist device therapy, um, and the timing of those um, interventions mm-hmm. as well uh, are, all, are all critical. So you have to be a good team player because, as, I've, as I said at the start, it's a, it's a very much a multidisciplinary team decision-making process, so you have to have very good relationships with your um, cardiology colleagues, your other surgical colleagues, um, transplant coordinators, physiotherapists, social workers, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a vast team that's involved in this, uh, in this process, so uh, you, you, you have to have very good um, skills that, that work within a, within a team mm-hmm. and respect everybody's, uh, everybody's views and opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have, I think, probably a higher um, level of stamina perhaps because a lot of this work is at night Mm. Um, (laughs) transplantation is a nocturnal activity most of the time Mm -hmm. Um, when you're on call you will get a lot of phone calls through the night about potential donors um, and once you're in the process of setting up a transplant there's a lot of phone calls going back and forth between Mm -hmm. coordinators retrieval teams and so on um, until you have to actually get up and go in and and do the operation Mm -hmm. so you know, you have to be able to um, live with that sort of lifestyle mm-hmm. um, uh, if you want to uh, pursue transplantation yeah. as, as a career. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say because I think you know people understand the um, the you go when you do the transplant. It's probably going to be in the middle of the night. But as you as you mentioned, the the fact that prior to that, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of communication, a lot of yeah. contact to, to yeah. yeah. There's a lot 
lot mm-hmm. of uh, disturbance mm-hmm. on and off for some hours before yeah. you actually get up and go in and do the operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time, you will get a lot of phone calls and disturbance and so on, and then the heart doesn't turn yeah, out to be suitable. any good at the retrieval, and then it's all mm-hmm. cancelled, but you've had a very disturbed night mm-hmm. anyway. You mm-hmm. have to get up and go in and do your day job. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you yeah. just have to be able to, um, you know, live, live that lifestyle, mm-hmm. really. Transplantation. And mm-hmm. it might be with, uh, you know, different organ preservation technologies mm-hmm. that transplantation will ultimately move into a daytime activity. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we, we could easily find ourselves in a position where hearts can be retrieved overnight and just left mm-hmm. on a machine in the corner of the theatre and then everybody comes in at 8 o'clock mm-hmm. to transplant. Mm-hmm. That might well end up being the case in due course. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been over my lifetime. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, we might well get to that. that point in the future mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in terms of you know other preparation for a transplant career you just need to have um, uh, a, a real passion and interest in it mm-hmm. um, you know some of the time the operation is, is pretty straightforward a first time heart transplant is is not a technically demanding mm-hmm. uh, operation uh, but if you've got a patient who's had a VAD implant um uh, then explanting the VAD and the heart and then implanting mm. the new heart. They, that, those can be very challenging and very difficult mm. um, procedures. So, uh, again, you need to be someone who um, likes doing long, complex operations mm. and the challenges uh, that, that, that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, with more and more patients with ventricular assist devices uh, implanted that are on the heart transplant waiting lists, that, that is becoming increasingly the norm mm-hmm. um, so so you know you, you, you do have to be uh, someone who likes likes those those long operation mm-hmm. challenges mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the the, the training or preparation mm-hmm. um, I, I think that um, you know there are six transplant units in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. uh, so there are opportunities if you happen to be a trainee in those centers mm-hmm. to go along and attend the, the heart transplant assessment meetings mm-hmm. and go along and, and watch the transplants being done or help with the transplants being done. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are no transplant fellows, uh, for example, that, mm-hmm. that are doing that talk, go along as well as them, mm-hmm. just to start to get a feel for, for what the specialty involves and, and mm-hmm. uh, the decision-making processes. And also go to the transplant ward rounds and see what happens with the patients afterwards, how mm-hmm. immunosuppression is managed, how they manage... Uh, infections in immunosuppressed patients, mm. how primary graft dysfunction is managed, what ECMO is all about, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and certainly in Newcastle, we we offer a six-month rotation for our general mm. cardiac surgical trainees to, to come into transplant for six months formally, if mm. they would like to. Mm. Um, not, not all do, but if, mm-hmm. if they do, that, that opportunity is there to get mm. more of a formal taster uh, for what transplantation is all about. Um, and that would obviously be combined with lung, lung transplantation as well, mm. uh, as heart transplantation. Mm. And then for those who really want to think about this as a career, I would, I would very highly recommend um, the National uh, Peri-CCT Transplant Fellowship Scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an 18-month fellowship at either Newcastle uh, Papworth or Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you that opportunity to completely immerse yourself in, in heart and lung transplantation, be involved in every aspect of it from retrieval, implantation, assessment meetings, 
and so on and so forth aftercare of the patients um, but also comes with significant funding for educational opportunities alongside mm-hmm. that and attendance at the international transplant meetings and other mm-hmm. educational opportunities um, which I which I think is a very valuable resource mm-hmm. and you know it's backed up by a very strong educational agreement to set out exactly what, what you need to achieve over that period of time and has successfully placed many young surgeons into transplant units uh, who've then gone on to pursue very, very successful careers in, in the discipline. Mm. Um, and those posts will come up at differing times mm-hmm. because the 18-month fellowships um, end at, at different points in the year for each of the units. Mm. Um, but I would certainly suggest that if you are around your um, CCT date, um, you, you would certainly be eligible um, mm-hmm. to to look into one of those posts if it was something that interested you. Mm-hmm. You would certainly be a stronger candidate for those if you had had some kind of transplant experience before, yeah. so yeah. that uh, you know that, that was something you could bring bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I think increasingly that's the best route into into transplantation in, in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. The, the other thing that we we do. Uh, is that uh, in Newcastle we have a uh, surgical techniques in cardiopulmonary transplantation yeah. course, mm-hmm. which is two days. It's mm-hmm. human cadavers. Mm-hmm. Um, you get some very short, uh, snappy, didactic lectures on aspects of transplantation, but the vast majority of time is spent in the um, cadaver lab doing mm-hmm. an actual heart transplant, doing a lung transplant, putting a ventricular assist device in, putting patients on ECMO, looking at different perfusion technologies mm. and, um, and there's a lot of faculty there so mm. the number of faculty to uh, delegates is, is, uh, is very high so mm. it's very informal but it gives you over two days quite a good introduction to, uh, to heart transplantation and allows you to understand the surgical techniques and do them yourself in human cadavers mm. which is you know, very lifelike actually yeah. uh, having run the course for about six or seven years now mm-hmm. So I would uh, suggest that too, if, if, mm-hmm. if people can't get an opportunity to go to a local transplant centre, to sign up to, to the course mm-hmm. um, and, and just get a little feeler or just better understanding for heart and lung transplantation and ventricular assist devices um, just over two days on that course. Yeah, well, thank you very, very much for doing this. I think it's been really, really useful. Um, I'm sure lots of people will find it useful. I think with um, with all these sort of more subspecialist areas, you know, sometimes you get all sorts of confusing messages when you're going through training of working out exactly what's what. And uh, so it's really useful. I think you've explained it really clearly. I think people will find it very helpful. Well, thanks again to Professor Clark for an excellent talk, talk through cardiac transplantation. Um, I hope you've all found it as useful as I have and I look forward to hearing any comments or suggestions you might have. Again, you can always contact me on Podcast at gmail.com and soon we'll be on Twitter too, so look out for that. Um, anyway, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.